Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War, where I look at the Great War, First World War, from Canada's perspective. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I do all of this full time, and every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Monday, Wednesday, Saturday. I also have From John to Justin every Friday, and Coast to Coast every Thursday. They're on all podcast platforms. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Around the same time that the Battle of Kitchener's Wood was ending for the Canadian troops, a new battle was beginning. The Battle of Saint-Julien would begin on April 24, 1915. This battle would be notable for many reasons, not the least of which was the fact it featured the first major gas attack against Canadian troops in the First World War, and the first warding of the Victoria Cross to a Canadian soldier during the war. Like the Battle of Kitchener's Wood, the Battle of Saint-Julien is mostly forgotten by Canadians today, but it was major news for the country when it happened. The battle itself is just one part of a much larger battle, the Second Battle of Ypres, which ran from April 22nd to May 25th, 1915. In fact, I could have somewhat included my previous episode on the Battle of Kitchener's Wood with this attack, as they happen close to each other and the days nearly overlap. When the Germans conducted their gas attack on April 22nd, launching 168 tons of chlorine gas at 5pm followed by a heavy bombardment, the village of Saint-Julien was in the rear of the 1st Canadian Division. With the breaking of the line, the village was now at the front line and would become the first staging ground for the battle. This was because the Moroccans and the French to the left of the Canadians had retreated from the gas, and the Germans soon flooded into the gap. The Canadians at the time were in disarray with telephone lines cut by shelling and units giving conflicting reports regarding what was happening on the left flank. As the Canadian artillery fired its 18-pounders into the German trenches, the Canadian commander became aware of German troops moving into the open towards his position. He quickly requested infantry support and the 14th and 15th battalions were sent forward. Among the group was a machine gun squad commanded by Lance Corporal Frederick Fisher. The 13th Battalion strengthened its position at Saint-Julien and was one of the few holding the left flank. Dealing with heavy fire, Fisher was able to cover the retreat of the battery with four of his men dying in the process. By holding the line and allowing the battery to remove the immediate threat of the Germans, Fisher would continue firing into the Germans until his squad could be taken to safety. The next day, after recruiting four more men to replace his lost men, Fisher again went forward into Saint-Julien to fire at the Germans. While bringing his machine gun into action under extremely heavy fire, he was able to defend the Canadian Division sector from the Germans, but he lost his life in the process. The London Gazette would report on his bravery, quote, On April 23, 1915, in the neighborhood of Saint-Julien, he went forward with the machine gun, of which he was in charge under heavy fire, and most gallantly assisted in covering the retreat of a battery, losing four men, he went forward again to the firing line and himself was killed while bringing his machine gun into action under very heavy fire, in order to cover the advance of the support, end quote. For his bravery, he was awarded the Victoria Cross, making him the first Canadian recipient from the Canadian Expeditionary Force to receive the honour. 
Fisher's body was never found, but his Victoria Cross was sent to his parents along with a handwritten note from King George V himself. In 1916, a portrait of Fisher was unveiled at McGill. On April 24th at dawn, the Germans released another gas attack on the Canadian line west of Saint-Julien, and George Nasmith, the head of the field laboratory for the Canadian Expeditionary Force, advised a field ambulance officer to pass along the order to counteract the gas with urine. Nasmith had spent six years working as a Toronto's deputy health officer when he enlisted in the First World War. When gas was released by the Germans, his experience with water purification was vital as he identified the fumes that were approaching as chlorine gas. Along with recommending that urine be used to filter the gas, he quickly created the first gas mask of the First World War by saturating a small cotton pad with hyperchloride of soda. His method was quickly adopted by the rest of the force, and as soldiers realized the gas was approaching, they ran as fast as they could, and within one hour, there was a 1.5-kilometer gap in the Allied line. The Germans were worried about the gas in the area and did not take advantage of this gap immediately, which allowed the Canadian and British troops to retake the position. Of the gas attack, George Kasser, an officer of the 3rd Canadian Brigade, would state that the men who died from the gas were, quote, suffering the agony of the damned, grey-green in the face and dying from suffocation, end quote. Even with urine-soaked cloths, the gas attack was devastating for Canadians. Many were half-blind, crying from the pain in their eyes, coughing and vomiting. Some soldiers attempted to get to safety in craters and ditches, only for the chlorine gas to pool in the low ground. An unnamed officer quoted in a December 13, 1915 Montreal Gazette article would state, quote, At about this time, too, the rifle fire, which was growing in volume and coming much closer on our left, warned us that the line had been penetrated. A peculiar, sickening odour assailed which, at the time, I attributed to the shells, which were bursting about us, but which, we have since learned, was the asphyxiating gas used by the Germans for the first time. End quote. The 15th and 8th Battalions of the Canadian Expeditionary Force were the focus of the gas. Troops reported burning in their eyes and lungs in the 15th Battalion, but the 8th Battalion was missed. They would attempt to attack, but soon found their Ross rifles were jamming. During this fighting, Sergeant Major Frederick Hall discovered several men were missing in the trench. On the ridge, he could hear the cries of the wounded. In the dark, he went over the top twice and rescued two wounded men. On April 24th at 9 a.m., he again went over to rescue wounded soldiers with the help of two other soldiers. Under intense enemy fire, the two other soldiers retreated, but Hall continued and rescued a man who was calling for help. He then lifted the man on his back and attempted to carry him back to the trench. As he did this, he was shot in the head and killed instantly. The soldier he attempted to save was also shot and killed. For his bravery, he was presented with the Victoria Cross the second of the war for Canadian troops. Hall had come from Pine Street in Winnipeg on the 700 block. That same block had two other Victoria Cross recipients from the war, Leo Clark and Robert Shankland. It is believed to be the only street in the British Empire to have three Victoria Cross recipients live in it. In the 1990s, a history minute was made about the street. Oh, I'm sorry, oh. Come back! Come back! 
Shanklin lived on Pine Street, too. And you know what? So did Leo Clark. Head the hall! Sergeant! Sergeant! It's Clark! We just heard he took out 20 Clark. Germans! Clark? Clark, Shanklin, Hall. Amazingly, they all won the highest award for courage we could give them. The Victoria Cross. That's why we changed the name of Pine Street. To Valor Road. The Germans were eventually able to take the area and the British troops were unable to retake it due to, once again, the use of gas by the Germans. The Germans then attacked the line north of Gravenstoffel, but the Canadian troops were able to hold the line for most of the day. In the evening, the Germans attacked once again and pushed the Canadians behind Gravenstoffel. The attack hit the 15th Battalion hard, with the battalion suffering 647 casualties in what is considered to be the worst single battle loss for any Canadian battalion in the entire war. The unnamed officer in the Montreal Gazette story would describe the casualties, stating, quote, The casualties were appalling. The ambulances found it almost impossible to clear the wounded, and had it not been for the remarkable energy of all ranks of the medical service, many wounded would have been lost. End quote. The 13th Battalion was also forced to withdraw from its position, while those units that had not engaged the Germans were thrown into the mix, including the few remaining members of the 10th Battalion that had been decimated by the Battle of Kitchener's Wood, which by this point had only two officers and 171 men. By this point, the Canadian battalions involved in the battle were nothing more than random groups of men who were fighting in the same location. The 16th Battalion went in to reinforce the new line that the 3rd Brigade had created, while the 8th Battalion was reinforced by the 5th and 7th Battalions. At one point, the 10th Artillery Battalion were pushed back so hard and had their backs against the wall, so to alleviate the attack by the Germans, they began to fire their artillery point-blank at the Germans. During a renewed German attack, Edward Bellew was part of a company suffering heavy casualties as the Germans advanced. Holding two guns on high ground, he began to attack the Germans directly. With one other soldier, he continued to fight as the Germans advanced. The other soldier was killed while Bellew was wounded, but he remained at his post until his ammunition failed. At this point, he took a rifle and smashed his machine gun and started firing from his pistol until he was taken prisoner, and he would be held as a prisoner of war until 1919. For his actions, he was presented with the Victoria Cross, the third of the war, and the third of the battle for Canada. Sir John French, the commander-in-chief of the British forces, stated, quote, After a very gallant resistance by the Canadians against superior numbers, Saint-Julien was captured by the enemy. Our lines now run south of that place, end quote. By this point, the 7th Battalion was nearly wiped out while the 14th and 15th Battalions had suffered heavy casualties. The Canadians had lost 1,000 yards beyond Saint-Julien, with 14 companies, and what was left of them fighting in five different battalions. By April 26th, most of the Canadians had been relieved and pulled back from the line. And while the British would continue to fight in the line for several days, the Canadians' time in the battle had come to an end. The casualties for Canada was beyond anything that the country had seen to that point, with 5,975 total casualties, including 2,000 Canadian soldiers killed in the battle. On April 24th alone, 3,058 casualties occurred during the infantry attack 
artillery bombardment and gas discharges. In all, one out of every three men became casualties. The Calgary Herald would report, quote, At Saint-Julien were little graveyards where the bodies of several Montreal and Toronto Highlanders, killed in previous days shelling, had been buried. Despite a large wooden cross marking the sanctuary of the dead, the Germans made particular practice at that spot until it was absolutely obliterated. End quote. The Saskatoon Daily Star would report, quote, It was only the Canadians' wonderful stand maintained many hours and varied by violent charges that enabled the Allies to retire in good order and reform the line. A summary of the situation shows, however, the Germans gained a great deal. End quote. In Banff, while most roads are named for animals and places in the Rocky Mountains, Saint-Julien Road is named for the battle that changed Canada's role in the war forever. At Saint-Julien, there is a 35-foot-tall granite monument called the Saint-Julien Memorial, or the Brooding Soldier, which stands with its head bowed and its hands on the butt of a rifle to honour the Canadians who died in the battle. As usual, I want to look at the soldiers who lost their lives in the battle or were severely wounded. With so many, I'll only be looking at a very small number. Private Peter Truss of Port Perry, Ontario, was stationed with the 48th Highlanders, and he would lose his life in the battle on April 23rd. Private John Flanagan was serving with the 15th Battalion when the Battle of Saint-Julien occurred, and his grandfather had served in the Crimean War, so war was in the blood of the family. By the time John enlisted in the First World War, he was 29, unmarried, and both of his parents were dead. Reported as missing on April 24th, his body was never found, and he was listed as dead on April 29th. Private Robert Ingham, who had been working for the Canadian Pacific Railway when he decided to enlist in the war, was serving with the 9th Mississauga Horse, and his last letter home would be on April 14th. Soon after in the battle, he was reported missing, and on May 17th he was listed as killed in action. Private Abner Klaus was wounded at the age of 20 during the battle. His mother was soon notified in St. Thomas, Ontario, but by the time the wounded notice had reached her, he was already dead. Private Fred Smith of Artemisia Township was gassed during the battle and taken prisoner by the Germans. He would remain with the Germans until he was exchanged for another prisoner in the fall of 1917. Soon sent to the hospital, he would die in Switzerland, still in the hospital, on July 22, 1918. I've decided today to look at Raymond Arthur Saunders for my profile on a particular soldier in the war. He had enlisted with the Canadian Expeditionary Force on September 24, 1914, at the age of only 16. Lying about his age and stating that he was actually 18, he was assigned to the 2nd Brigade of the Canadian Field Artillery. Colin Campbell, a corporal with the brigade, described Ray as his, quote, best and only chum, end quote. The two men became friends in the battalion, spending most of their time together talking about their families and sharing meals. Raymond was described as very popular in the battalion and he took great pride in his horses. On April 25, 1915, Colin and Raymond decided to bed down for the night with their horses in a small grove of trees. Suddenly, a shell hit near them and after the commotion, Colin saw that his friend had been hit by a piece of a shell, hitting him on the left side of his head. Raymond was not dead, but he was seriously wounded, and the four horses with them were all killed. Raymond was quickly taken to the closest casualty clearing station, where he received medical attention. 
Sadly, 20 hours later, he had died. Colin would write upon his friend's death, quote, It is awful hard to lose someone one loves, end quote. Along with his other friend, Gunnar McNeil, Colin buried his friend Raymond. He made a cross and painted his friend's name on it. He would then write home to the father of Raymond telling him about his son's death and stating that he would visit him when he returned home from the war. Sadly, on October 10, 1917, aged only 22, Colin died. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Battle of Saint-Julien. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurieanne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S. J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from CanadianSoldiers.com, the Government of Canada, Mount Pleasant Group, WartimeHeritage.com, Wikipedia, the Royal Montreal Regiment, Rocky Mountain Outlook, the St. Catherine Centennial Book, Split Rail Country, Virtual War Memorial, Montreal Gazette, Ottawa Citizen, and the Saskatoon Daily Star. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.